Hey everybody, this is uh, episode 11 of Jointly Venturing, and we're very honored today to have with us uh, Stian Nordingen Christensen, hopefully I pronounced that properly, uh, who is speaking to us from Oslo, Norway. Um, he is an author um, of a book that we'll be talking about shortly, also a diplomat, and today we are speaking to him in his personal capacity. Um, but his day job is indeed with the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But everything we say today is personal, not political or institutional. So welcome, Stian. Thank you very much, Scott. So thanks very much for coming today. So a year or two ago, you published a book called um, Possibilities and Impossibilities in a Contradictory Global Order. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about that book, and then we'll We'll go through some of the key highlights. Mm. Well, thank you, thank you, for also for the opportunity to to come on this uh, podcast and uh, talk a little bit about the, my book. Uh, the um, the basic idea of the the book is to uh, try to tease out the fundamental underlying factors that underpin the international system. And uh, what I uh, I argue in the book is that uh, what we have at the moment and what we have had in the world since uh, since the first and second world war is a system that combines uh, two very basic um, uh, but uh, also conflicting uh, factors uh, in a very general sense. Uh, it's simplified, of course. Uh, we have a system that is built on the heritage of the sovereign state uh, principle from uh, the 17th century, but combined with a new factor, which is the notion that legitimate governance springs from a sense of uh, popular or general will, what the population needs or wants to, to, uh, to, uh, to have, uh, and that the governance should in some way reflect that popular will and also uh, be held accountable to it which is uh, two actually very different principles. And the way that the international system is, uh, is based, according to, to my book, is, um, is uh, in such a way that uh, this, uh, these principles will entail certain possibilities of, of where we can go, but also, uh, to a large extent, uh, some uh, limitations as to how far we can hope to reform the international system. Uh, for example, uh, for years we've been talking about Security Council reform, uh, reform of the uh, UN General Assembly, reform of WTO and so on. And what I argue in my book is that uh, some tweaks and, uh, and twists are possible, but in, in, in the main sense, it's very difficult to, to change the international system from within the international system. And then I, um, I also try towards the end of the book to, uh, to talk a little bit about what the, the future might hold, which is very difficult, of course. But uh, the main uh, thrust of it is really that uh, something, well, basically this system that we have is not really uh, tenable in the long run and that it will be replaced at some point by something different, which we don't know exactly what will be because uh, the, the international system is... Uh, is so um, uh, broad and uh, pervasive that uh, that it's it's a little bit difficult to, to predict. But then I, I try to, to tease out some possible some possibilities for for the future. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, indeed, it is impossible to predict what sort of system 
will eventually emerge. But if you look at current developments in the world today and likely developments in coming years, particularly the the large scale, you know, truly planetary threats that we're facing, you know, it was announced by the UN yesterday that over one million species are at risk of imminent extinction. Um, you know, recent climate change data is proving to be far worse than um, initially projected. Um, obviously, we always have the, the looming threat of nuclear weapons, etc., um, and a whole range of you know rather authoritarian, nationalistic, political developments happening um, in far too many countries. So, bearing all that in you know in mind, um, what direction do you think it will go? Um, and is there much discussion about these things during the meetings that you have um, at the diplomatic level? Are are there do you encounter many people that, that think we really need to go to the next level, so to speak? You know, a system that's much more um, based on, let's say, our shared humanity rather than ultimately the sovereignty of states. Hmm. Excellent questions, uh, Scott. I, I, to, to take the first part first, I think that the, there is uh, very clear, I, I don't think it's controversial at all to say that the, the way that um, the world is developing in terms of climate change, which you mentioned, global challenges, security uh, have been there for a while with uh, nuclear weapons and so on, but also the, uh, the economy. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, being uh, more and more uh, uh, a, a case of uh, global interdependency. I mean, more so for some countries and others, obviously. But sure. uh, certainly, there is a globalization that makes uh, makes it uh, very important and increasingly important to consider forms of global governance. And I think that probably tax paradises are, are one case in point, which. Uh, sure. Which is certainly something that would require and uh, and uh, need uh, some kind of uh, overarching global solution, uh, climate change obviously uh, as well. But at the same time, we can, we have a system that's still based on the notion of sovereign states, and it's not really. I mean, with the exception of a few cases uh, such as uh, extreme forms of violence, genocide, and so on, mm -hmm. the international system is not really structured to to kind of um, decide on a solution that states have to implement. And I'm, I think that this is a, one of the, the most important challenges of our time, is that when we talk about climate change, for example, we talk about it in, in um, fora that are not really uh, capable of, of making a decision that will bind the states in the sense that, for example, a national government would, would bind the different institutions of the state to, to follow up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you asked about the, the, what the discussions are at, at the diplomatic level. I, um, I have to say that the, the, there is um, what, what diplomats do mainly is to work with what we have. Uh, there's not really much room or space or time even to talk about these longer term uh, issues of, of deep uh, development in the international system or, or global governments. It's more about uh, trying to solve the issues that are at hand with, with the tools and the mechanisms and the institutions that, uh, that are available. So, yeah. it, it, to my mind, the first part of the question and, and the deep changes and what we need is something that has to be discussed mostly outside of the diplomatic uh, circles and uh, within, within societies and uh, 
and on, on, another, on another level. Because I don't think that that kind of change really can be, at least not to, to the degree that would be satisfactory to solve or, or really deal with these challenges. It's, it's difficult to see that diplomatic level alone can, can be sufficient, frankly. Yeah, and, and of course, um, you know, when one reviews, um, as, as too few people do, I would say, um, the origins of the current order, the post-Second World War order, um, you know, the accomplishments that those people were able to achieve um, in 1945 on the heels of the brutality of that conflict are, are really rather remarkable. You can almost not imagine that such a system could be put together um, again today. And But of course, reminds us that, you know, the last thing we want is for there to be a crisis so severe that it takes that in order to create a new order that is, you know, truly based on, on the equality of people and, you know, the one human family approach, right? So, I mean, maybe, you know, from our view, climate change, as bad as it is, is perhaps that thing that uh, everyone everywhere is going to experience. It's just a question of degree. Um, And maybe finally, you know, that will create enough awareness in enough people um, to realize that you know, tackling that obviously cannot be done alone at the nation state level and something much, much broader needs to be brought into being. But one of the um, examples that is often used as sort of a precursor, as a a stepping stone towards something more truly unified is, um, you know, reference to the European Union and the role that the European Union plays both in, you know, providing an incredible example of, of, uh, a form of unification that is so different than the preceding centuries, um, and one that to a certain extent, more limited than most people realize perhaps, does involve a degree of voluntarily renouncing one's sovereignty. Um, So how do you see that playing out? If the European Union was to be done over again, for instance, um, any thoughts on what that might look like? what, what are the lessons that could have been learned? And should other regions move in the direction that the Europeans moved in uh, 60, 70 years ago to realize the benefits of collaboration, um, cooperation to that very high level? I, I um, that, That's a really a very relevant approach, I think, with the European Union. I'd just like to take a little, little step back first and talk about the, uh, the international system, which you mentioned coming out of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Really a, a little bit of combination also with uh, the heritage from the First World War, but that's a parenthesis. But I think that it's important to realize that both the international system at that time, but also the European Union, has been a very gradual process. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to think of, um, for example, today, the Human Rights Declaration, Universal Declaration from 1948, as the the big starting point for for international global human rights movement, which it was, in a sense. But if you look historically at it, it was really not that much talked about, at least not of the very highest levels of government in Europe and the United States at the time, in 1948. Mm-hmm. It was seen more as a political declaration for those willing to to do this and. Uh, not really anything of a binding nature, difficult to see what future this document would have. But then it took around 20 years uh, for uh, countries, states, diplomats 
to discuss how this can be shaped into a legally binding framework, which led to the the two global covenants being uh, being adopted in in, 19, uh, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's a gradual process. It's not as though we came out of the Second World War with a kind of a ready-made system. We had the pillars, but then they had to be filled with content. I think that's what you're seeing. Same thing you could say about the European Union, starting with a uh, uh, purely commercial interest and uh, and how to rebuild uh, economies after the Second World War in the 1950s, mm-hmm. growing into a bigger union, and uh, after a while also entailing not only economic issues, but also political defense and so on. And it, it's really extremely interesting to see how far that has gone. And for those of us who can remember or have traveled to other parts of the world and across the borders, for example, the, the way it's structured now in Europe, it's really amazing how freely you can move move about and, uh, and how much of a actual union it has become. And right. historically, again, looking at it, if you look at the nationalistic sentiments in France and Germany, for example, for the past 200 years, it's been extremely antagonistic towards each other. And how this is just now developed into something completely different is, is truly remarkable. And it shows, to Absolutely. my mind, how these uh, state and sovereign issues are not really permanent. At the mm-hmm. same time, and this is the other side to it, uh, the European Union has preserved the state sovereignty principle, if you will, in its uh, systemic uh, makeup. And... Um, uh, states still carry the weight in the union. States can also leave the union if they want to. But as yeah. we, of course, have seen very clearly now with the uh, Brexit uh, process, is that it's not really as easy as some would uh, would have uh, have thought. <laughs> and Absolutely. it leads to other questions about sovereignty in terms of, for example, a a further revival of a Scottish independence uh, movement and uh, so on. So. In Europe, this concept of, of sovereignty, I think, is, is changing. And, but it's changing also into not necessarily something completely different, but, um, but I think the European Union is also has a very state-like structure, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not very different from a national state in a sense that its, its system of governments emulate the the uh, nation states uh, in Europe, and um, in in that sense, it's not really completely different to what we have. It's just that these states used to be completely sovereign. Now they are independent into such a degree that they are uh, part of a larger larger concept or, or union. I think. So the question is, can this be done in other regions? I think certainly, given time, but uh, but obviously um, some regions will be much more difficult than, than others. And in some regions, I think we have to remember that uh, in Europe, politics for the past half century have been very much about economic growth, uh, labor, how to how to resolve these social issues and so on. Whereas in many other parts of the world, it's been much more about internal conflicts, armed conflicts, uh, um, power struggles, uh, in some places, uh, clan politics. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I, I, I don't think it's really as ripe, probably, to, to have that kind of process, at least not, at least not to that same degree in, in all the regions of the world. Uh, but given enough time, why not? 
Right. If we have enough time, <laughs> you know, given the current threats, it's looking yeah. um, like that's not necessarily guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the that's part of the big struggle, of course, for mm-hmm. those that, you know, think it may be beneficial to, you know, to our species, mm-hmm. that if we had a more global uh, polity in place, mm-hmm. you know, grounded in, in a principle of world citizenship instead of national citizenship. So, mm-hmm. you know, you were referring to the fact that, you know, Europeans, after fighting for hundreds of years, um, mm-hmm. pretty much overnight got rid of borders and no one really even thinks about them anymore. It's almost a foreign concept within mm-hmm. the, the, the confines of the EU. Yeah. And I wonder if you think a similar thing would occur if we were to, um, well, we've been doing some research on this whole question of world citizenship um, as a concept, and then also the practical side of doing such a thing. And and a lot of people have argued that people would get used to it a lot more quickly than than people think initially. Yeah. You know, so yeah. if people, for instance, just as as in even in the poorest of poor countries virtually everyone is registered at birth as a national of the country where they happen by chance to be born. Mm. Um, you could institute a system whereby there was simultaneously a status of world citizenship also um, conferred mm. on, on the new baby, you know? Mm. And, that, mm. and, you know, our thinking is after a few short years, maybe one generation, maybe two generations at the most, this would just become second nature. And then mm. the real question would be, what does that actually imply? What mm. what does that give somebody a right to do? Um, and mm. and who is responsible? Obviously, is mm. it is it just the national government? Is there some global global governing structure of world parliament of sorts has yeah. responsibility in determining where those jurisdictional lines can be drawn? And I think you know those are all very practical, realistic things. Mm. It's ultimately you know it's less esoteric pie in the sky you know big dream that i think most people impossible dream you know than than many realize but what are what are your thoughts on that do you think we're it's an inevitability that we're going to move into the direction of a of some sort of world citizenship status and something like the european citizenship status in quotes that exists now will be like a stepping stone towards something more global in nature well, I mean, the, um, I, I don't think it's an inevitability. Uh, I think it's a, a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's really, this is s- still a very distant future, so it's, it's hard to, to kind of make any kind of prediction. But I would say is that it takes, under the very best of circumstances, uh, if everything points in one direction, it would still take a little bit more than one generation to, to change mindsets of, of a large number of people uh, in the country and, uh, and also in, in terms of uh, the kind of process and mind change that has been done in, in Europe. It was, I mean, you, you can't disguise the fact that this came out of the mindset following the Second World War. Right. At which time, before the war, nationalism, I mean, still was a very, very potent power in many European countries. Before the First World War, uh, certainly, also before the Second World War. After mm. the Second World War, most of the countries in Europe, not all, but, uh, but most, found that uh, the, the very pure, at least ethnically based nationalism was completely uh, discredited. Right. And from, from there, of course, it was easier, in a sense, to build 
a more uh, common European uh, sentiment. Not not inevitable, but certainly easier. But uh, I would also like to make the point that uh, when, you, when you talk about changing minds, and I think you have to change minds uh, on a large scale to kind of achieve something so grand, it sure. doesn't have to f- come out of a, a, like a large scale or global cataclysm. It can be done in other ways. And I think that one, one of the things that I discuss in my book is this, this change of mindsets, which is really a global one from uh, what we used to have governments legitimately based on uh, mandates from heaven, uh, you know, divine uh, sure. uh, legitimacy, and and so on, which was the most common uh, way to legitimize a government in the world in the 17th century, uh, 18th century. This changed, and uh, and what we're seeing now is that even even regimes that are obviously uh, dictatorships tend to legitimize their uh, status by pointing to the popular will. We are here for the benefit of the people. Uh, we are giving the people what they want. It's not, it's, it's uncommon uh, today to legitimize your, your government, even for dictatorship, by pointing to any kind of uh, divine intervention or, or something like that. It's, it's the, the popular will framework of legitimacy, I think, is uh, really, really won over most of the world. So. To me, that's an example of how mindsets can change and have changed, and uh, which makes it possible to think about other forms of, uh, of governance as well. But uh, at the same time, the, the, the system, the international system, still sovereignty, I, you, you can't really write it off. You see also nationalistic sentiments uh, on the rise in many places in the world. And it's really a, a very uh, mixed picture, some would say, last decade has been very negative and uh, and they would have a point as well i think yeah absolutely and and of course you know those of us who like to think about um you know possible positive futures um particularly when it comes to issues of global governance um very often face um you know quite hefty opposition by people who use that almost as a, a specter of doom you know, mm-hmm. that only, you know, if the, if there was a global parliament or a world government, et cetera, it, it would automatically become, as you mentioned in your book, um, mm-hmm. quoting, um, you know, Kant and Rawls, either dystopian or uh, almost assured to be a global dictatorship. And obviously, mm-hmm. um, now with nation states, there is a degree of checks and balances and balances of power that mm-hmm. uh, prevent the effective dictatorship of any country against the rest of the world. And that's, I think, one of the strongest things about the current system that we rarely, um, you know, pay attention to. Um, But there are ways, perhaps, to design such a global structure that that would, you know, heavily decrease the likelihood of something like that emerging. And one one of the ways that it could be done, if there even needs to be a head of state, so to speak, is that you have a you have a revolving presidency similar to what Switzerland has now um, mm. to the point where the, the head of state changes so frequently that, you know, in Switzerland, most of the time people couldn't even tell you who the mm. president was um, mm. and their role is significantly diminished compared to um, mm. other countries, but there's always some, somebody there. So yeah. um, what, what do you think about that whole idea of having a world parliament in which 
either forms of the nation states that we have today are participants or one that is truly based on the popular will of people um, grounded in some sort of foolproof uh, global voting system, perhaps using their iPhones. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, first of all, I'd, I'd like to say that the, um, it's never a completely clear picture. And when you talk about Switzerland, which is uh, such an inspiring model in many ways uh, in mm -hmm. terms of how they structured their, their country, uh, I'm, I'm, I also regret that uh, probably this was the last country in Europe that uh, gave uh, full voting rights uh, to, to women. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so there's always uh, there's always a little bit of a, a catch, I, I think. And uh, when you look at other systems of government, like uh, the, the very high um, degree of direct democracy in, uh, in California, for example, led uh, led to a major fiscal crisis for for a large for a long amount of time, uh, just a, a little bit over a decade back. So mm -hmm. there are, there's always some some mixed uh, pictures, but. Um, to me, it's a, it's about two things. It's about first of all mindsets, which I talked about a little bit about previously, and mm -hmm. the second thing is is about incentives and uh, the way that if you look at the European Union, certainly the economic incentive has been uh, probably the most important in bringing these uh, these countries together. You can right. say the same thing actually uh, about the German unification process in the 19th century, starting also with a with the well, obviously nationalism, but also the um, the uh, customs union, uh, German mm -hmm. northern German customs unions, which which uh, evolved into this state structure uh, for many reasons, but economically was uh, certainly one of them. And uh, well, there are similar processes as well. So I think that you sh you should never underestimate the significance of of trade and uh, interdependency in, in the economic sphere as an incentive to bring. Uh, different peoples and different uh, countries and states together and also to make it a little bit difficult to to make a war or to also leave uh, a customs union or a political union and, and so on. And then there's also the incentives for uh, the uh, heads of state, the, the ones uh, at the top of government as well, to have checks and balances and to, to have a system of government that is... Um, that is uh, to some way held accountable for the people. And in that sense, I think there are two aspects which are very important. One is that the, there is in most established democracies a system of revolving uh, responsibilities as heads of state through elections. It doesn't have to be elections, but uh, certainly a, a normalcy of shifting power, which entails that the one leaving office will not lose everything but uh, mm -hmm. but leave with dignity and and go on to live full and, and rich lives which is not possible in many parts of the world the second is right that the these states are based or the, the societal and economic structure of these states are based on the contribution of the general public as taxpayers as uh, intellectuals as uh, bureaucrats, uh, as uh, captains of industry, workers in factories, uh, what have you. I mean, the, the competency and the contribution of the common man, if you will, or woman, uh, is the basic um, unit for the well-functioning of the state as well. And if you have that uh, societal and economic structure, it makes sense also to to, in a sense, um, 
structure the system of government in a way that caters a little bit to, to these people as well. I, th I think that as long as you have a state that's where the public is um, the main contributing factor to the economy, to the well-being of the state and, and society, it will, to a certain extent, um, point towards a, a more responsible government because people will, at one point in time, probably demand it. Right, and and you mentioned the question of tax there, and and, and earlier you mentioned the question of tax havens, and and mm. still the ability of large numbers of people essentially to hide their money yeah. um, in tax havens. And how do you, what do you see are the main developments in that regard? Do you see a decline in the number of tax havens? Do you ever foresee a day whereby they will all yeah. be made illegal and shut down? Well, I, I do actually, and I, I think it's this is uh, probably one of the weak points in my theory <laughs> in my book because uh, I, I think that, you know, in a sense, the, the sovereignty uh, principles dictate that it would be possible for a small state to, to provide these kinds of tax savings and attract uh, these kinds of uh, uh, economic behavior, uh, hiding money and, and so on. But at the same time, the big states in the world have a obviously a clear interest in, in uh, eliminating those uh, tax savings. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if I think that if the European Union, uh, US, uh, Japan, a couple of other countries got together and just decided uh, what to do about it, it would be dealt with very, very quickly. And uh, I, I, it's, it's, uh, I, actually I struggle a little bit to, to find a very good reason why this has not been done already because it would be possible because the, the global economy is structured in such a way that after all a few very big players have most of the pool and uh, it should right. definitely be possible for them to to decide on rules which would make it impossible for for these tax savings to to persist yeah i mean allowing the, uh, allowing people to establish companies only under the name of the company without mm -hmm. a personal name would be a good place to start right beneficial yeah. ownership questions and I then mean, the, it would be a sorry, lot harder. Sorry. Yeah, no, I'm just saying then it would be a lot easier to eradicate those structures. Mm, mm. There are a number of ways to do it. and But I think one of the challenges is that uh, many states try to solve this through their own national legislation. But then some other states could uh, do something different and then you'll really not get very much further. So you, this is one problem that you have to solve on an international level and just to get the, the biggest players together and uh, and have them uh, work out uh, some common rules which would uh, which would uh, render those tax savings uh, impossible right well um, on that positive note the tax havens are slowly on the downhill trajectory um, I'd just like to thank you again um, for the discussion today it was really fascinating um, that's Stian Nordingen Christensen, the author of Possibilities and Impossibilities in a Contradictory Global Order. It's a great book. I'd urge everybody to read it. And Stian, thank you very much again for today's really great talk. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure. All right. We'll see you soon.